We're going to get into Ephesians chapter 2 today. Um, Let's just pray and um, just invite the Lord into this time. God, we thank you so much for your presence with us. God, we thank you that you are here. Thank you that your word is living and powerful and that um, it gives life to us, God, and it gives guidance and it reveals your good news, God, your gospel that applies to every single one of us, God, that we all get to participate in this life. So, Jesus, I ask that you would just inhabit this place, God, that you would, um, that you would teach all of us today, myself included, God, that you would just be here. Um, we thank you for your wisdom and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So, um, I'd love, you know, before we dive into Ephesians, anyone have an experience with prayer? Um, I, I didn't plan on asking this, but I just felt like uh, Rick last week taught, um, we're kind of interspersing every month or so. Rick is teaching at one of the spiritual disciplines last weekend. He taught about prayer. And anyone has an encounter or a story or something that stood out to them, we'd love to hear it. And I can grab the mic and, and pass it around if anyone has it. Raise your hand. Let me get grab this thing here. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, that's okay. Um, About a week ago, I actually was before the teaching on the Friday, I did what's called a prayer circle around um, our current house and then where we are building, uh, we're trying to build in front. And so I made like this big loop and I probably did 20 or 30 laps just praying. Um, It was in the morning and I just kind of had heard about prayer circles where... Well, I won't explain the whole thing. But anyway, I did about 20 laps just praying for our house and for the building of the house and for the people in the house. And it was incredibly powerful. So. Oh, wow. That, that is really cool. I, um, I've heard of churches doing this too, where they do prayer walks around a city and just praying for the city. I was actually, you know, I know Rick has been talking about, we've been talking about as leaders and elders about having times of prayer. But I was even thinking maybe that's something we could start inviting the whole church into maybe as the weather gets nicer, just walking around Sherwood like in an evening or something, bring kids, strollers, and just walk and pray. That could be cool. I think there's something really powerful about that, that God, um, there's a lot of pictures in the Bible of physical places and the way that, you know, even the, like Jericho is an example of where the people went around the city praising and worshiping. So um, anyone else have a story? That was, that was awesome. Thanks for jumping in, Laura. Anyone else before we... Yeah, Rich. So when we were still living in Alaska, feeling like we should come back to Oregon, um, there were three things that we had to, that we sort of put in place. Is okay if this is meant to be, then we need to uh, we need to get the kids back in the charter school. Mm-hmm. We need to find a house and share what to rent. Nothing was available at the time, and then I needed to find you know an income mm-hmm. job. And, you know, long story short, all three of those things fell in the... And we had a house that we wanted to put on to, to either sell or, or rent. Anyway, those three things all lined up within like a week. You know, wow. just sort of felt like dominoes. And so I was like, yeah, maybe this prayer thing works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So even last... I'll, I'll share this too. Yesterday, Carol was gone for the weekend. And when she wanted to go see this uh, uh, friend of her. Why don't you tell the story? competition 
Oh, it was just it was just a little thing, but it just it's just a reminder that God cares about the little things. We had a fan, a friend in town, and her and her excuse me, her son was in a dance competition, and so we had a limited amount of time to get downtown to find parking to get in at the assigned time, and it just seemed impossible. And literally, we were just praying the whole time there, and we made it like within thirty seconds of <laughs> like his uh, you know show time, and oh, so wow. it was just like oh, thank you, Jesus. So. He cares about the little things. That's cool. That, that is awesome. I, I, I love that, whether it's small or big, I think sometimes we feel like, oh, I don't, I don't really need to pray about this like mundane thing, but God cares about it all, right? And there's no difference to him, whether it's getting to a dance competition or praying for a house or praying for someone to get healed from cancer. It's like all those things are the things that God invites us into. Anyone else before we kind of transition? Yeah. I got two here, so I'm gonna Okay. I I've got a friend who's who's gravely ill and when you start talking about percentages of survival, you, you mm. know it's it's not getting good. So they set up this caring website and in three days it had like fifteen hundred hits on it. Wow. And the vast majority of the people saying, I'll pray for you. And so these are all these names that, you know, I don't know but but this gentleman does know. Wow. And just the just the use of social media to get the words out and, mm. and it so now there's you know <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people praying for this gentleman. Wow. Yeah. So. That is really beautiful. I think it's funny because like social media, we don't often think of at least at least I don't of um, leveraging that for prayer, but it's like we have these powerful connections. Most of the time we just use them to share cat videos, you know, but to actually go like, <laughs> let's actually like surround someone in prayer. It's beautiful. Do you want to? Okay. I actually tried to take what Rick said last week and, and and apply it and get up and pray and center my day on what is my purpose for the day that God wants me to do. And on most of the week it, I felt very centered and got a lot done, and it was a very good day. The one day, Friday, when we did the men's group, I didn't do that, and so Friday was a crazy day. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, I, it was good. What Rick, it got me recentered and thought about what is my purpose for the day besides just getting 27 jobs out. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. I think the everyday, the everyday life experience is... Something that we, you know, at least I like. I I'm so focused on okay. I gotta I gotta get up and get out, and we don't often just create space to to even just if it's a minute or two minutes or five minutes, just listening to God. It's awesome. Thanks for sharing your stories. If you guys have more to share, shoot an email to Rick from one of his e- weekly emails, or come and talk to one of us, and uh, we'd love to hear more of that. Um, we're gonna dive into Ephesians today, Ephesians chapter two, and just to kind of pick up the story, I'm gonna read the first part of Ephesians. Um, too, because it connects with the passage. So today's passage is Ephesians two eleven through 22, through the end of the chapter. But uh, I really felt like um, we should back up and, and talk about it again. So again, um, I'll kind of set it up first. So what we're talking about, what we talked about last time in Ephesians was uh, the way it ended, the end of verse 10, was this amazing picture of salvation. Um, Paul really gets into this height of what the salvation experience is all about. And it's really focused on this individual level. Um, it's, it's, um, and as we read it, you'll see, and we'll, we'll be refreshed. I won't take a lot, a lot of time, um, 
rehashing what we what we've previously covered, but I just wanted to set up the context of the verses we're going to get into because they he he builds on it and he hinges over to something that it would almost feel like is disconnected, but it's really not. So um, I'm just going to re- start reading Ephesians 2, verse 1. You can listen. If you have a Bible, follow along. And then we'll get into our passage for, for today. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in, your trespass- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, this passage, I mean, I, every time I read it, I'm just like, I, I just feel like I'm barely scratching the surface of this because it's, I mean, the, the things he goes into, he goes into the desperate situation of humanity, of each individual human heart. And he's really focused on the individual level here. And I think this is where it's really comfortable, um, has been, you know, in, in evangelical American Christianity to, to camp out. We love it. And I love it. And honestly, it's powerful. Um, but what, really what he's talking about is the human condition. The condition of our, our heart and our mind was, was totally corrupt. We were by nature children of wrath. So he even goes back to creation and us inheriting the, the, the sin of Adam and that we are all sinful, we're all broken. But the good news and, the, and really this, this picture of the gospel is really one lens on the gospel that, that he paints, which is the individual human heart. The human condition is corrupt. We are all corrupt. We've all chosen to go our own way. We've all chosen to rebel against God. And, but God being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive that it's a gift, even our faith that we choose to, to, to trust in Jesus was given as a gift. He opened our heart. He allowed us to see his, his grace, and he allowed us to come into this full understanding of who he is. And it's beautiful. I mean, honestly, these are some of the most incredible verses of the whole New Testament here. Um, but what's interesting is he transitions in verse 11, and he actually is going to go back all the way back to, to, to Genesis 12. And he's going to reference the covenant that God had with, with uh, Abraham that God established, which is really interesting to me. As Rick and I were talking through this passage this week, we, we uh, met early this week to just, we kind of uh, often discuss as a, as a teaching team what the, the upcoming passage is. And as we were talking about it, it was like, and he really just, in verse 11, he, he kind of goes to a place that's really surprising, you know? And it's like, for me, as, as we were reading it, we were like, why does he go here? Like, this just seems like, especially in our day, it, it's a very unpolitical, it's not politically correct. It's like, you don't call someone out. He's going to call the uh, Gentiles out and, and really kind of paint this picture of what the, what the reality of what the Gentiles lived in. And I'm like, man, if you really want to be popular with an audience, you don't, you don't go up in front of them and go, you know, by the way, you guys were you guys were completely outside of the life of God, and which, is, which is what he does. And it's like, well, why is he going here? It doesn't make sense. And I, as I was processing that this week, I realized 
he's bridging because the gospel story is not just an individual story. It is an individual story. It is each one of our stories that we have corrupted, that we've chosen to walk away from God, and God has redeemed us. But there's a whole other lens of the gospel, the good news, that actually goes all the way back, begins with, begins with Adam and Abraham, and it actually carries through into the final judgment, into when Jesus is going to come and make everything new. And that's really where Paul's going to go today. We're going to see him bridge and actually kind of zoom out and look at, well, what is the bigger story that our story individually is a part of? And what does that mean for the church? How are we supposed to engage with that and live with that? And so really excited to kind of dive in. Um, just as a way of review, because we'll re- remember Abraham in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham, called him out of his, his place of origin to move into Canaan, to move into the promised land and inherit promise. And God basically came and told Abraham, Abraham, I, I, I want to bless the whole nations of the earth through you. I'll read um, briefly from Genesis 12, um, that passage, because um, he, he kind of um, he kind of lays it out. The Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, and, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the story up to that point in time was Adam's line. Adam's sin was inherited by all humanity. Humanity had gone off course. God had already corrected it with Noah and his family and, and restarted everything and, and started fresh. But that, that story of humanity was corrupt and broken. But God had a plan to redeem humanity, and he introduced that plan to Abraham. Abraham was living in Ur. He was living in a pagan country. God called him out of worshiping his pagan gods to become this new nation. God established his nation with with, with, with Abraham, and his promise was for Abraham. And he also promised to bless the, all the nations of the earth through Abraham. And that promise, we see that thread, that story throughout the whole Old Testament of God, again, renewing that promise over time to, to Moses. He would come to each of Abraham's children. He also came to Moses and said, you're going to be this great prophet. I'm, he spoke of a prophet greater than Moses that would come. This promise, he also came to King David and the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise was that there would be a king that would rule forever, that would come and someday rule over everything, which is, was fulfilled in Jesus when Jesus came. But there's this still whole reality in the Old Testament that, if you guys remember, what was the sign that God gave his people in the Old Testament? Does anyone, can anyone think of the sign of the covenant that God asked Moses, uh, Abraham to, to participate in? Circumcision, Circumcision right? It's, it was this marking of their flesh, the rolling away of the flesh, this picture of this new heart that God wanted them to have, that he wanted them to be set apart, wanted them to have a new heart. And eventually, even the prophets picked up that, that theme when they talked about the redemption and the Messiah that was going to come. The Messiah is going to come and circumcise your heart. It's really the outward circumcision physically for the, for the Israelites was a picture of what God wanted to do in our hearts. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't complete until Jesus came. So, but in that process, if you were a Gentile, you were really outside of the promise of God. And, and that barrier is really hard to, for us to understand. I think culturally, I was reading some commentaries and it was like, every commentator was like, it's really even hard to paint a picture of, in a modern day context of how isolated a Gentile would have been to the promise. They were viewed as, by Jews as fodder for, for hell. They were viewed as like these people that had no purpose other than to, to fuel the fires of hell. I mean, it was, there was this intense disdain 
And for Gentiles, if you look at, you know, um, the Greek nations and Roman nations, the way they viewed um, outsiders and, and barbarians, like they hated Jewish people. <laughs> so there was this equal hatred on both sides of both parties, you know, and I was thinking on, in a modern day, you know, it's like when Paul comes and Paul's going to come here and speak to these Gentile Christians, these Gentile believers, and he's going to say something that honestly, it was just like, the only picture I could think of is imagine you, you address or, or me as a, as a, as a, as a white person would go into a group of African-Americans and go, Hey, you know, and you start use, using the words that they used 100 and, 150 years ago to refer to African-Americans and then said, Hey, remember when, when you were slaves, like, and, and just to even go there would honestly, I can't even imagine what that would feel like in a room of people. If you, if I was doing that in a room of people, I was picturing this and going like, that wouldn't go well for me. Like it, it wouldn't be a popular thing, right. To go back and go, Hey, remember when you were in slavery and, and I'm a white person saying that to an African-American. I mean, it would just be like, what are you doing? You know, but Paul does that. And so I was kind of going, why? But he's reconnecting the gospel and Jesus' work with the story in the Old Testament, this thread that you had to be part of God's covenant people. Now, there is beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of people like, like Rahab the harlot, who was not a, not a Jewish person, who became a covenant person because of her faithfulness, her, her choosing to align herself with, with Yahweh. There is, there is stories of people of Gentiles joining themselves to the Jewish people. But they still, in worship, had to be isolated in the outer court. Imagine coming to a church, and you're a Gentile, and it's like, sorry, you're not welcome in this room. You've got to sit outside, and there's no video screen out there, and you're just kind of in the outer court. You can't experience the fullness of the life of God. And that's really what it was like to be a Gentile who wanted to express faith in Yahweh in the Old Testament until Jesus came, and Jesus changed everything. So verse 11, we're going to pick up the story, and we'll see here he goes right to circumcision. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's talking about the, the actual act of circumcision in the Old Testament. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So again, it's, it's interesting. It parallels the earlier passage when he talks about you were you were alienated from the life of God. You were living in your own sins. He's now painting a similar picture. This was your former state, but he's actually painting it in terms of the covenant. So the picture is broader now. It's, it's now a picture of you Gentiles were not part of God's, you didn't participate in God's family. You were not part of his covenant. Um, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, as I, my heart kind of ached as I was, was reading through this passage yesterday, and I was just thinking, without God in the world, that's probably the most saddest picture of life, right? Just, you're going through life, you're going through the world, and you're without God. It's kind of a picture of hell in, in, a, in, in a real sense, because hell is an eternity without God, right? which is just like unfathomable. But this was the condition of Gentiles. And Paul's reminding them of this for a purpose. He's not just trying to shame them. He's not trying to make them feel bad. Although imagine if you were a Gentile and you're in a, in a, in a church with a bunch of Jewish people, you're in Ephesus and Paul comes and, or someone comes, a messenger comes and reads this, this letter to you. And you're a Gentile believer. At this point in the, in the message, in the sermon, you're probably feeling pretty like, 
wow, like, where's he going with this? Because I feel pretty bad. Like, this reminds me of this broken, broken story. But it gets amazing. And the picture just gets so beautiful. He says, but now, verse 13, in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here we see even this picture, because a lot of us, a lot of times when I think of the blood of Christ, I think, oh, Jesus died. His blood was shed for my sins, which it was. But here he's saying, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so, but he's saying this in the context of a relationship with all of God's covenant people. So, so Jesus' blood didn't just pay for my sins, it did. But that payment for the sins brought, it, brought us into this relationship with God. And it also brings us into a relationship with all of God's covenant people. All of a sudden, now, the blood of Christ is not just an individual like, okay, I'm, I've dealt with my guilt, I've dealt with my sin and shame. But because all that is dealt with, now I can actually experience life with God and with his people. And he's going to go fuller here because he's going to paint a picture of, of the Jewish people as well and their need to hear this, this message as well. But, you know, it's it, the way I, I was thinking of it, um, the only way I could think of, one of the ways I could think of to really make this, to understand this, this picture is, that, you know, imagine, um, I was thinking of Karina and, um, and Matt who lived for several years as missionaries and they were helping... Um, I think they were in Myanmar and there were other places, but they were helping women who were caught in, who were being trafficked, like sex trafficking. And they were helping these women get these safe houses, right? And so I was thinking of this picture of salvation, right? The first half of Ephesians 2 is literally the rescue of the woman, right? It's taking her and getting her to a safe place. That's what Jesus describes. It's, you were completely destined for destruction. You were doomed for hell. And God came and saved this individual person, Right? And then, um, you know, I've seen pictures um, on Instagram. I've followed this, this one account. I can't remember if it was Pre-Member Pre- New, which is the, the ministry that they were a part of. But there's these, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, there's, you know, these pictures of weddings where these women that are, were formerly sold into prostitution are now being walked down the aisle by this advocate father who, because their own father either sold them into that or was dead or gone. And, and this, this, you know, American man that was like, had helped get these women to the safety were now, years later, had, were walking this, this woman down the aisle into this new life with this Christian man. And it was like, to me, it's like getting the woman rescued is, is immense and powerful. That's the first part of Ephesians 2. The second part of Ephesians 2 is like, it's not just res- you know, getting them to physical and emotional and mental safety, but it's actually... Now it's like you could experience this whole new life. Like you get to live this whole new life now. You get to live this life with God and with his people and, and you get to um, have a husband and you get to have a whole new family. And that's, that's the picture that God is painting here that is, to me, is just so beautiful. It's beautiful because it's like a lot of times it's so easy for us to, you know, um, we focus on the benefits for us, but we often forget the story of like God going, no, but I'm bringing you now into relationship with all of his people and what that means and what that looks like. For him, um, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I, you know, this wall, there's a wall. In the temple, there was a literal wall. There was a, 
an outer court that the Gentiles had to, had to worship in. There was even, for the Jewish people, there was a wall, a huge curtain that was ripped when Jesus died, but it was like this giant curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from even the rest of God's people. And there was a literal wall, there was, but also spiritually, Jesus is saying there's this wall that was separating us, dividing wall of hostility. And he, again, has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The whole Old Testament law is not something that we need to, to live in anymore to be a part of the covenant. Now, the heart of the law, the moral law of the Old Testament is still binding on us because it's God's wisdom for us for life. But that's not how we come into right relationship with God anymore. That is through Jesus. Um, expressed in ordinances that in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This word in other translations is humanity. I specifically wanted to read the ESV today, one new man, because it, it also references back to Adam, back to this, the first man that was created. The human project went off the rails really quickly in Genesis 3. And this new man that is created in Christ. Christ is a picture in the Old Testament. Um, in some of Paul's writings, he talks about the first Adam and, and the last Adam, who is Jesus. There's this old man, this picture of the old humanity under Adam, under Adam's, under the inherited sin, the story of the, the humanity that went off rails, and now he's created one new man, one new humanity with Jews and Gentiles together. And the hostility between Jews and Gentiles was so intense and we can even see the tension in the New Testament as you read the book of Acts, and you see, like, all of a sudden around Acts, I think Acts 12 through 15, like, Gentile believers get saved, they get brought into the church, and the Jewish, the Jerusalem church freaks out. It's like, well, wait a minute, these guys can't be. But Peter goes, well, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did us, and they're like, okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess they're able to be Christians now. And, and there was still a lot of tension, right? Even in Galatians, Paul gets up in Peter's face and is like, hey, you're still showing favoritism. You're still separating yourself and doing Jewish things and separating yourself from Gentile believers. So there's, there's a tension throughout the New Testament. But there's a one new humanity, and it now includes Gentiles. It's not open to everyone. And this new humanity, now for us, we're, we're probably, most of us in this room are mostly Gentiles. I mean, uh, I don't, there's probably some of you that have some, some Jewish origin, but by and large, we are all Gentiles. So it's for us, like this is all of us, most or most of us in this room that are, that are like, we're all part of God's people now. But I believe this picture gets even deeper because it's not just Jews and Gentiles. It's the differences that we have among us. Churches, uh, I think a lot of times we can divide or there's conflict and we divide and we don't, we don't hold unity in, in the, the, the high regard that God does because we we see a lot of our faith and our expressions of faith in an individualistic way. Well, I don't like what, what that guy said, so I'm going to go find a different church. And certainly, right, there's some times where there is a spiritual abuse, there's horrible things going on that I think it's actually good. We probably do need to separate from churches sometimes. But we also need to, to value unity and to go, you know what, there's a lot of differences. Um, our elders at all of the Colossae churches gathered um, Cannon Beach at the end of January. And what stood out to me that was amazing is the diversity of beliefs about everything from women in ministry to 
you know, all kinds of different issues, right, in, in the church. But there's a unity. There's a unity saying, hey, there's certain things that's core to our faith as Christianity that we're not going to, that we're just, we're going to die on those hills, right? Like what it means to be a, a Christian, like the Apostles' Creed, like the, just the basic Christian stuff. But there's a lot of freedom in a lot of different areas to, to disagree, but to still be unified and still be in leadership together and still be leading God's church together. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's what God's painting a picture of. Let's, we'll continue on here and, and just see this. Um, in verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Those are Gentiles. And he, and peace to those who were near which are speaking of the Jewish people. They were near the covenants and promises. They were part of it. They needed to hear peace too because there was hostility on both sides. And Jesus, through the cross, killed the hostility. It's this picture like there's, I was actually thinking of it as a, if you diagram it out, the cross, the, the horizontal bars, it bridges the relationship between broken humanity, right? But it also bridges from heaven to earth. Like the brokenness between God and our relationship with God was healed on the cross. That's the first part of Ephesians 2 is God and, and humanity healing. And it also brings the, the horizontal healing, the healing between broken relationships on one side of the cross and then the, the trajectory of the rest of the New Testament and the, the trajectory of God's church is this healing horizontally, which is healing relationships that way. It's beautiful, and we see both of this, in this in, at work in this chapter. We see this broken humanity and the relationship with God restored, and now God's also, God's also saying, but it's more than that. It's actually healing the, the relationships that we hold with each other that are healed, that are actually bridged, that we can actually live in unity as one people. And whether or not we separate from other Christians or we disagree with them or fight with them or we think uh, at the end of the day, what it means to be a Christian, we're going to be in, in a new heaven and a new earth with all of God's people. <laughs> and you know what? Like, there's going to be a lot of people that you see there that you're like, whoa, I, I can't believe I, I, that person's here. I didn't think they were really a Christian. Or I didn't really think that, you know, like we totally were fighting and we totally disagreed on so many things. And it's like, yeah, they're still a Christian. They still believe in Jesus. They still trust in him for salvation. Like, we're going to spend all eternity with these people. Why? I think God's working that into the now to say, let's, let's be unified. Let's be unified around the things that really matter. And he came, um, okay, so we read that. In verse 18, for through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's one spirit. There's not two different spirits. There's one spirit, one Father. We both have access fully. We are both full citizens now. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of, of the household of God. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer, I mean, I was thinking about this. How, how many of you have felt like an outsider at some point in your life, like high school, junior high, or maybe even still today, right? It, it, it sucks to be an outsider. It is not fun to be the person that gets picked on. I remember junior high, I mean, I was, I was super skinny and tall, through uh, junior high and high school. Like I was, I think I, in, high, in junior high, I was like the same height I am now, but I weighed like 170 or something. So I was just like this skinny kid. I was taller than a lot of kids, but I got picked on. Like one of the biggest bullies was this short kid. He was one of the shortest kids. He was from California and he had spiky hair and he was just like, he was just, <laughs> like everyone was afraid of him because he just, everyone, he was, anyway, I just remember that. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Um, but being, 
being the outsider is no fun. It does, it's not fun. It's not cool. And I think we can all relate to that on some level, feeling like that at some point in time. I hope that anyone doesn't feel like that here. If you do, please come and talk to us. Because honestly, like, we love everyone at this church. And it's, it's been such a joy to... We feel like this is a family um, where we all care for each other and get to know each other. But also, I know that some of you have been through some really traumatic church experiences or experiences where you you honestly got burned by God's church and you're like, I, I love Jesus, but this whole thing, this horizontal thing, this being around other Christians or being in churches is not cool. And I, I can relate to that. And I think I've been burned by churches before. I've had to deal with a lot of angst, even in my own heart, about the way I feel about other churches, the way I still look at them and go, uh, you guys are... You guys are crazy. <laughs> and, and I think that's okay. You know, it's okay to be real about, you know what? Churches are, are filled with humans. Humans are in leadership positions who are failing left and right. And that's unfortunately a part of the reality we still live in, right? But we can't give up on God's church. We can't give up on the reality that God puts us in a network of relationships. So we are fellow citizens with the saints. That's our new identity, citizens and saints. We are citizens. We're participating in this new humanity. We're saints. We are looked at as fully righteous in Christ, even though we didn't have a righteousness of our own. Christ Jesus himself being the, uh, sorry, I skipped, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And here's where he really brings this picture down to our level. I feel like in a very, um, in a very, visceral way. So Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So now we have this picture of this holy temple. The Old Testament, the the temple was a physical place that had walls, separated Gentiles and Jews. This new temple is God's church, his people. It's not a building. It's not a church building. It's a network of relationships. And it spans beyond Colossae. As a family of churches, it spans beyond Colossae Sherwood, our local expressions. It does include our local expression, but it's way bigger than that, right? It's all people who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This dwelling place, as I was thinking about building, and I I was thinking about Peter because he... If you're not familiar with Peter, you just, he's a cool guy. Get to know him. He, he, builds, he works for this company that builds Overkill. That builds, they're aptly named, I think, because they just do crazy, crazy projects. Uh, metal fabrication and wood and like really crazy stuff. Awesome stuff. And I was thinking about building, right? And, and what's required for anything to be built, whether it's a house, whether it's paper airplane, right? Friction. Friction is the one thing, like... You're sanding away boards, you're, you're planing things, you're, you're shaping things together, you're using nails, which is, all relies on the scientific thing that we know as friction, right? Friction is what holds everything together, pretty much, in our universe. And, and I was thinking about this building, and I was like, number one, this picture is of stones, which the stones, when they were fit together, Rick was actually telling me in some of these buildings they would build, they would just have to push the stones together until they rubbed off enough to get fit together, right? Or, you know, as you know, like in the temple, they actually, they actually cut the stones. They didn't build, cut them in the city. Then they had to haul them in the city and fit them together 
perfectly. And some of those stones in Jerusalem that are still a part of the wall and stuff, like, it's crazy. Um, they're, all, they're all fit together, right? But this picture of the Holy Temple is God's people, is God's church. It's also true in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us individually and joins us together into this building and this, this relationship. And what I, what I realized is I was like, wow, it, friction and tension are two things that we don't like <laughs> in human relationships, right? Um, we had Rick and Tricia over this week for dinner, and we were talking with them about marriage. And, and honestly, we were talking a lot about our story, which I've shared some here and, and with some of you. But, you know, the first years of our marriage were really hard. Um, we fought really bad and, and a lot. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, there was, it was just painful, right? And there's friction and tension constantly. I mean, we were fighting, I think in the early couple years of our marriage, we were fighting, my wife and I were fighting bad, constantly yelling at each other. It was just, it was not, um, it was not good. But what Rick and Tricia were talking about is he was like, man, we see so many couples that, so my wife and I just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. And honestly, like our relationship is like, I feel like we're by no means perfect. We still fought over the weekend, right? We still fight. But I feel like things are, we're growing together and we're actually, God's knitting us together and it's actually healthy, you know? It's, I feel like we are connected more than we've ever been. But that didn't come easily. It came with a lot of tension, a lot of friction, a lot of rubbing stones together and, and, and pain, right? There's discomfort there. And Rick was, it was, I so saw Rick's, if you, uh, our pastor Rick, who's on vacation, pray, pray for him because he's, vacation's a great time to recharge. I think it'd be awesome for us to pray for him while he's gone. But he was, he just has such a pastor's heart, a father's heart. And he was like, I see so many couples that don't get, they, they give up before that. Like they get 75% of the way there with all this friction and tension. And then they just, they just tap out and they get divorced and they don't ever get to the good part. They don't ever get to the part where it's like, now you get to, to kind of start growing together. And I know some of your guys' stories probably connect with us a little bit of just marriage is hard, right? It's hard. Relationships are hard and messy. Raising kids, there's tension and friction among kids, between parents and kids constantly, right? Human relationships are completely like that, but it's God's purpose to use that friction and that tension to build his people together. Um, it's 1050, so I'm going to keep, I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, it looks like some of the grade school kids are coming, and you guys can can come in. Um, but this picture, as we close out, is what I believe God is painting for us, which is friction and tension is the means by which God builds his people together. And sometimes those stones fit together great immediately, right? But sometimes they, they uh, don't. And what I want to encourage us in is don't give up on the work that God's doing through his church, through his people. Don't give up on the, the network of relationships, even though they're hard. And God's calling us to step into those so that we can grow. And it's for our own growth. And I think sometimes we stunt our own growth when we don't invest in being with God's people the way that he's designed because we, it's hard and it's messy and it's going to be. But I can tell you that our church, our leadership is committed to that. If you guys were to sit in and be a fly on the wall in our elders meetings or the email threads that go around, like there's tension and it's, there's messy, right? We disagree with each other a lot, but that's good. And it's shaping all of us as leaders even to be better leaders, to love more. And I believe that God is inviting us all into that. 
in the relationships that he has formed in our church. So um, I'm going to pray. You guys can go pick up your kids from junior high. And then um, Peter and um, Peter's going to come up and, and lead us in worship. But I really just encourage you to take this to heart. What is God asking you? What relationships has God, maybe you've neglected, that God's inviting you to, say, to pick up and say, I need to actually invest in, in, in these relationships. And it's going to be messy and hard at some times, but it's going to be beautiful because God is building us into this holy temple, this building that he inhabits by his Holy Spirit. And I believe that picture, if you keep that picture in your mind of that wedding, of that woman, and I've seen several of these, but just that picture of the woman who was in slavery, who was, a, who was brought to a safe place and then was then is launched into this whole new life together. And that's really a picture, I believe, of what God wants to do in our church. That he wants us to, have, to be a family and to be committed to one another, to be invested in one another, and to be close enough together that we can feel that tension and friction at times, that we can experience that, that difficulty. But we, we love each other. We are so in love with God and with each other that we are willing to go into the mess and to be there for each other. I can tell you the, the thing that made the biggest difference in our marriage was getting into a community that everyone shared everything and it was like everything's out in the open and all of a sudden we had a safe place to, to actually start healing our marriage. And those relationships and the tension that we had even as as community group was, at a, this is at a previous church, but it was like that's what launched us into the, the, the growth that God had for us. And I believe he wants to do that in us. So let me pray. And you can um, pick up your kids. Sorry for going late. God, I just thank you so much that you are the great healer. You heal all of our wounds, and you were wounded yourself. And it's because of those, the wounds that we even carry and feel that you would invite us to become healers as well, to help heal other people, to connect together as a church and find the people that are hurting and, and to care for them. To make them feel the reality that they are a part of this family. I pray for anyone in this room that feels disconnected from you, God. That feels disconnected from your church. Or maybe this is their first time visiting this church and they're like, whoa, this is... I just pray that they would feel welcome here. <laughs> Whether they stay here or not, that's fine, God. I just pray that they would feel a sense of your presence, your spirit in the people in, in your presence here with us, God. And I, I pray that they would just feel welcome. That they, they would feel like they have a home and that they're wanted, that they're invited in, that they're a part of this family. I just pray, God, that you would inhabit this place, that you would help us grow deeper with you and fall more in love with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.